the abolition of outreach. Race is an issue that has long scared and perplexed radicals in the United States. White anarchists today are especially dismayed from the lack of racial diversity, especially of blacks, among the folks who join them in the streets and, at collect- and in collective work. White anarchists have spent endless hours trying to figure out, quote, where the color is, unquote, whether at an anti-globalization demonstration or their local info shop. Around the globe, the majority of anarchists are non-white. Around over the last years, the anarchist community in America has started to become more like the rest of the world, ethnically and culturally diverse. A growing number of Latinos, Asians, Arabs, and other people of color have identified themselves as anarchists, yet this does precious little to assuage the feeling that something is missing. There can be no mistaking the fact that what worries white anarchists the most is not the lack of Latinos or Asians in their groups, but the lack of blacks. This may be a result of the unique racist cultural history of the U.S. Race is an essential aspect of state oppression and a bulwark of exploitive capitalism. No genuine revolutionary challenge to either the state or capitalism in the U.S. can fail to ignore racism's importance in maintaining the current system, and neither can anarchists. Unfortunately, exploitative tokenism demands for intensive outreach programs and other failed holdovers from the left have not made anarchist communities a welcome place for blacks. Despite our growing racial and ethnic diversity, there is still the lingering, lingering specter of an anarchist movement that is too white. White anarchists are often so frustrated by the lack of a visible presence of black folks in anarchist projects that they are easily susceptible to power plays by individuals, anarchists or not, speaking for black communities. Many times an activist, usually a white person specializing in anti-racism, has hijacked a meeting by accusing the participants of racism. Out of the fear of being labeled racist, whole collectives can be paralyzed by their inability to attract, though the Marxist jargon of recruit would be a better word, blacks to their projects. At other times, the issues of race and concerns for diversity have devolved into screeching accusations leading to self-defeating white guilt. White collectives have even relieved their guilt by seeking out members of the local black community to join them in fits of tokenism, which benefit no one. Countless hours and much hand-wringing have been devoted to creating effective outreach to black communities. Despite the amount of discussion about anarchists in the United States being mostly white, there has been remarkably little progress in attracting blacks to the anarchy. Some groups have become political Jehovah's Witnesses, white activists going door-to-door in black communities, preaching the benefits of anarchism. This is paternalism at its worst, assuming that is the, quote, white anarchist burden, unquote, to raise all black people to the lofty heights of our political beliefs. This behavior is especially hypocritical when white anarchists living in impoverished black communities decry other anarchists as racist while gentrifying entire neighborhoods. Some have suggested toning down anarchist rhetoric and principles, changing the way we dressed or the kind of music we listened to in order not to alienate blacks, as if their community is any less tolerant or more conformist than any other community. 
Some have suggested we need to work with authoritarian organizations in black communities in order to persuade them to the anarchist cause. This suggests that authoritarian organizing is typical of black communities. It assumes, implicitly, that only whites can truly appreciate non-hierarchical approaches to organizing and that blacks will be put off by such radical ideas. These attempts, although often sincere, are paternalistic and suggest an underlying disrespect for black communities. They ignore the long history of black anti-authoritarianism, from the slave revolts of Nat Turner to the black autonomy movement of the, in the 1980s. Such paternalism also shows a remarkable ignorance of the number of authoritarian white institutions that have taken root in American black communities, from evangelical Christianity to the Democratic Party. It's absurd to believe that black communities, especially those living under the heel of police brutality, are so fragile as to be alienated by outward appearances or tastes in music. For example, after the 2002 riots in Cincinnati, an anarchic contingent planning to take the streets debated whether, quote, blocking up, unquote, would confuse black folks and cause more police repression in the local community. These fears proved unfounded. When the masked anarchist showed up, a local black preacher remarked how he was impressed that the, quote, Seattle kids, his words, had come to Cincinnati and were marching hand-in-hand with the local community against police brutality. He even asked for a business card (laughs) to get back in touch with the anarchists for future collaboration. The anarchists also showed several groups of black teenagers how to turn their shirts into masks so they could avoid police repression and being singled out. This small example illustrates that black communities are potentially eager to make alliances with people with different tactics, clothes, and cultures than their own. If the partnership is one of equals working in solidarity with each other, it should be no surprise that the black communities in Cincinnati reacted positively to white anarchists. Yet, Cincinnati is only one city and many places have never seen similar positive interactions. Some white activists have become so disappointed with the failure of outreach that they reject the attraction of anarchy for liberty-loving folks of any color. They claim that anarchism is simply a Western ideology out of touch with communities of color and thus will never be accepted by them. People who make this claim ignore, at their own risk, the appeal anarchism has for many non-white and non-Western cultures around the world. The fact is that the majority of contemporary anarchists are non-white and non-Western, and anarchism has been colorful for its entire existence. Today, the anarchist communities worldwide are exceptionally diverse. Technologically savvy collectives in South Korea, military resistors in Uganda, indigenous groups in Bolivia, Brazil, and Ecuador. Sadly, for most folks in the United States, our images of anarchy have mostly been limited to North America and Europe. North Americans have to learn, have a lot to learn, from these multiple and diverse anarchies around the world, especially how each adapts the basic ideas of anarchism to their pressing local needs. Anarchy is just as relevant to the defense of ancestral land by indigenous tribes or the riots that have swept black communities after acts of police brutality as it is the more familiar anti-globalization or anti-government demonstrations. There are many ways for anarchists to achieve 
a greater diversity. One way is to create better and more open anarchist projects. We don't need to change our message, change our clothes, or change our ideals, which aren't in any case limited to a particular class, race, or type of person. We should focus our energy on building successful projects that are open to all people. Some of the resources needed to start these projects will initially come from less oppressed communities, such as white activists or middle-class blacks. This doesn't make them wrong, racist, or short-sighted. It simply reflects the historical and cultural reality of state and capitalist oppression. However, anarchists can build counterstructures that can be used by others, including oppressed groups. Relationships of trust between different communities can be built that allow these projects to become more diverse. Three key elements for successful projects are for them to be open, built on genuine affinity, and effective to the communities involved. By open, we mean that regardless of which group initiates the project, any group can use it if they find the project useful. Openness facilitates the use of these structures by different communities applying their own resistance and their own voices. The more successful and open a project, the more diverse it will become. People who suffer greater oppression or have fewer expendable resources, such as money and time, will be more willing to take the risk of joining the successful project. Different communities will only commit themselves to projects that are open enough and resources and possibilities to allow them to use it in their own ways. So, how exactly does a project become open? There are a number of tested ways in which projects can increase their openness to outside communities. The first is transparency. That means not only how decisions are made, but about all aspects of the project, who is involved, why they are involved, and what their goals are. A project should be as accessible as possible, including ways to connect to people who speak languages other than English, providing bilingual information and propaganda. The last and most difficult for groups is to allow outside communities to use the project without suspicion or micromanaging. This requires mutual trust. An info shop can invite black teenagers interested in hip-hop to use the space for open mic slams. If the project is genuinely open, the hip-hoppers' participation will allow the info shop to grow and evolve in new ways beyond the original intentions of its initiators. The founders of a radical info shop would probably not have been able to develop a hip-hop space, but when the hip-hop kids, quote-unquote, use the space, it expands and cross-pollinates both groups. When the groups trust and respect each other, the info shop can become a real place for cross-community dialogue and mutual trust to begin. The hip-hoppers who lack access to a show space may want to use the info shop on a more regular basis. If the info shop collective wishes to be open, they should be transparent, letting the kids show what the space is used for, how it started, and what its goals are. This transparency lets the people make an informed decision about whether the purpose of the info shop and their goals, own goals, own goals, are compatible. Again, explicitly anarchist groups should be honest about our politics so that we can avoid misunderstandings down the road. Neither group should have to hide their intentions or politics in order to work together. The info shop should also have an easy and accessible way for people to use the space. Most groups rely on poorly advertised, clickish meetings to make decisions. 
outsiders can be confused and intimidated by these sorts of setups. <clears throat> to be open, info shops can offer something as simple as a sign-up sheet in the front window. Expectations from both groups should be made up front, so there's no confusion or misunderstandings later. Being scrutinized by hawk-like protectors of a space during an event is never fun and only leads to resentment. The info shop must trust the people enough to let them run their own show with as little interference as possible from the collective members. This will allow the hip-hoppers to see the place and their event as their own and create a sense of value for the project as a whole. A hip-hop event is, not, is only one example. Different cities have different populations and needs, whether they are day laborers trying to organize or students planning a walkout. Openness allows for genuine affinities, just like people, groups, and projects will share natural affinities. For example, the American Indian Movement organizes their annual anti-Columbus Day protest in Denver with the help of particularly militant Colorado anarchists. These two groups share a history and commitment to direct action. These groups developed their own politics independently, yet they share an affinity when it comes to issues and tactics that make them strong allies. Sometimes these alliances happen organically, like when the primarily white, young, and anarchist anti-racist action allied with local Somalis in Lewiston, Maine. The arrival of the Nazi thugs brought together this unlikely pairing. For many of the anarchists, it was their first time working in solidarity with Somalis, and many people in the Somali community never thought they would have anything in common with anarchists. Affinity, in this case, kicking the Nazis out, is a much stronger bond than generic outreach, which chooses alliances solely based on race. Our projects must also be effective, and this may take more time and effort than openness and affinity. We cannot expect diverse projects overnight. In the mid-80s, a pirate radio station was started by techno geeks and punks on a houseboat in Milwaukee. They started with a mix of punk music and related political and scene reports. Activists from the University of Milwaukee got involved when they found a growing number of students listening to the illegal station. The students used it to promote their campus activism and brought a more overtly political bent to the station. Five years later, in 1991, a group of welfare mothers from the projects organizing against workfare work took to the airwaves to educate people on their issues. Before the FCC shut down Houseboat, the station had the unlikely format of punk rock, campus-based politics, and community organizing. This effective alliance was built slowly over several years. The students and welfare mothers chose to use the station because it was open and shared their affinities, but most importantly, because it was an effective tool for getting their voices heard. Many pirate radio stations are started by individuals with time, resources, and some technical skills. Since pirate radio stations are illegal, they often pose some risks. An oppressed community with few expendable resources may think twice before spending their time and labor to risk arrest when they have more pressing needs. An open pirate station, such as the one in Milwaukee, allows folks who have little time and resources to share its benefits. New shows can be developed, and if the radio station is successful as a communication medium, it will be used by others to promote their own causes. The increased use of the station will expand and shape its voice 
undoubtedly making it more diverse and effective. These, there are also other examples that are the reverse of pirate radio. Just as white activists can start a project and non-whites can use it, people of color can start a project that will later attract white anarchists. The Lower East Side and Bronx Community Gardens are an example of projects initiated by working-class Latinos. The gardens were both successful and open, and they began to attract white activists who helped strengthen and protect them. The two groups also shared an affinity, the desire for green space and community autonomy. Over the last decade, hundreds of gardens were cultivated, occupied, squatted, and defended by militant activists of various backgrounds. Even though the city of New York has bulldozed dozens of gardens to make way for gentrification, the struggle for the community gardens continues to be a shining example of diversity and openness. If we are serious about making our communities, cultures, and collectives more racially diverse, then we must be serious about our projects. We must build them with great passion and spend the time needed to nurture them. We must be vigilant to keep them open and capable of evolving as new individuals with similar goals are drawn to them. Taking the hours of unsuccessful outreach back into our hands will enrich our work and strengthen our collectives. This time can also be used to learn about other cultures and find ways we can create healthy relationships. When they are invited, white anarchists can support the initiatives of people of color. Anarchists of every color can transform the debilitating paralysis of white guilt into a passionate commitment to open projects that folks of any race, ethnicity, or background can freely participate and become involved in. Anarchists should abandon the moldy concept of recruitment and focus on creating useful and inspiring projects open to everyone and anyone. Honestly, addressing the issue of race will help us build healthier, more diverse communities of resistance. Courage is contagious. There is a sacred myth among some anarchists that punks, traveler kids, and their ilk alienate the masses. Some sincerely believe that if we only present a clean-cut face, centuries of anti-anarchist propaganda will evaporate under the light of our wholesome smiles. Patches, tattoos, piercings, masks, black clothing, and even the word, quote, anarchy itself have been blamed for the perceived apathy most Americans feel about the issues we are fighting for. Some argue that there is too much, quote, individualism, unquote, in our communities. These criticisms ignore the strengths the anarchist community actually has. If we hope to make real impacts in our communities and the outside world, we should focus on inspiration instead of worrying about alienation. The goal of overthrowing the state and ending capitalism is impossible without challenging the traditions and habits of ordinary people's lives. We should not pretend that SUVs or stock options will be a part of our future lives. Anarchy has always been a gamble with high stakes and impossible odds and staying active year after year demands cleverness, commitment, and courage. Few of us are brave enough to deal with the overwhelming powers of the dinosaurs alone. Individual courage does not create creatures of resistance. We need to cultivate our collective courage and build heroic communities. We should be the barbarians at the gate, not a horde of inoffensive clones.